Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. It says, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I'm going to invite Pastor Billy up up here and I'm going to pray for him. Father, this week I, I, I've, I've felt many times overwhelmed. But God, this morning I'm, I'm overwhelmed by your kindness, by who you are. God, I ask that you would meet each of us here with, with that same kindness, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, that you would enable us by your spirit to, to listen, to hear. And God, that you would have mercy on us and, and give us eyes to see what you would have for us. God, I ask that you would speak freely and boldly through your servant, Billy. Be our strength this morning. Be our comfort. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you guys can be seated. So they say that hindsight is always 20-20, right? Uh, But things always look better when we've gotten through them than when we're in the midst of it, right? Uh, Goofy story, but when I first moved here, so me and my brothers grew up actually when we were little, real little, in Kannapolis, North Carolina, and we made the move when I was in the middle of elementary school to uh, Burke County, and I'll never forget, my mom like often like reminds me of this goofy story of like the first day we got there, we stood in the driveway and just wailed. Like we, we were like, why did we leave our friends? We hated here, which is like just like the most, wonderful thing to see your children hate you for moving them, right? And so I, I look back at that and remember in the moment just being utterly devastated. Like, why would you do this to us? You took us away from our friends. You took us away from the birthplace of Dale Earnhardt to the mountains. Why would you do that? Maybe you didn't know that about Kannapolis, but now you do. And we were so bummed, but now I look back on that and I'm overwhelmed because this is home. This is where I grew up. This is the place I loved when I lived in Missouri. This is the place that I longed to return to. It's easy, right, when we have moments we look back on and we see that, that even though it was tough in the moment, right, God had purpose in it, and we're grateful that that thing, that moment, that time happened. Certainly it's easy, right? But it, again, it's not easy when we're in the thick of it, right? If I wasn't heartbroken in college, I wouldn't have my beautiful wife and child. But it's a lot easier to have that perspective on this side of things. Today, we're going to catch up to Esther and her cousin, Mordecai, and they're in the thick of it. They're in the mess. Now, if you kind of forgot where we were at, here's what's happening. So there's King Xerxes. He rules Persia. Persia has taken over and is the dominating force of the known ancient world at this time. There are Jews who have gone back to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and then there are Jews who have stayed in Persia. 
And Mordecai and Esther are part of that bunch. Xerxes kind of shows his true colors, has this huge six-month party. At the end of this six-month party, has a week-long party, asks his wife to come and parade herself in front of his friends for their amusement. She refuses. They dispose her, and they have this huge beauty pageant. And wouldn't you know it, Esther is chosen to be queen. And it ended last week with Mordecai, her cousin, discovering a plot at the gate for King Xerxes to be assassinated. And they thwart the plot, they stop it, and now it moves on. So that's kind of where we were. And just to give you a little bit of context before we jump into where we're at right now, it's been five years. It's been five years since we last saw Xerxes, Esther, and Mordecai. Now, what's been going on in this time? Well, Xerxes has been seeking to maintain his father's legacy. He's striving to go against the place that had eluded the Persians for a long time, and that was Greece. In order to do this, though, they had to try and figure out how to cross the Hellspot, a notoriously narrow strait of water that was heavily contested. It was one of the most vicious places where wars were fought and it served to prevent armies from crossing into Greece. Xerxes has this plan, along with his military might, to construct this kind of pontoon bridge. You can actually look this up. It's fascinating how they built this bridge system to go across this narrow strait of water. But the way it happened is a little interesting. So Xerxes has this construction crew go ahead. You guys go, build this, this whole bridge system for us, and then we're going to have an army come behind you ready to cross. The problem was that there was a massive storm. And so when the army shows up, what they see is a bunch of debris littering the sea and some extremely nervous construction workers. So how does Xerxes respond? Um, Not well, okay? He's pretty upset. He has the engineers and workers beheaded. And then I'm not kidding, he ordered his army to whip the sea. That's real. That's actual history. That's not made. That's what he did. You're kind of like, okay, not quite there. You got to get the picture that this guy is not a super stable person, right? But as much as Xerxes is a problem, it's actually a new character that's going to introduce kind of the main problem in the plot of the book of Esther. We're going to meet a guy named Haman. And Haman is a bad dude. Right? Haman is appointed as the grand visor. He's in a high official in the king's court. And that's where we catch up to today. And we're going to see first Haman's plot. So let's look at chapter 3 and let's look at verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus, that's Xerxes again, that's the Hebrew title for him. King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, promoted Haman the Agagite the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews 
the people of Mordecai throughout the kingdom of Ahasuerus, that is Xerxes. So now again, we meet Haman, who is promoted to this position of power. And we're actually told twice in Esther 3 that Haman was the Agagite, right? There's an important history behind this mention of Haman's background, right? It's, it's important that we all know this. God doesn't waste words in his word, right? Even those long lineages, right? Maybe you're getting ready to get to Leviticus if you're doing a different Bible reading plan than us, or if you're getting ready to get to Exodus, that those words have significance and meaning and value and depth. So the Agagites were the descendants of Agag, whose story is told in 1 Samuel 15. Agag was the king of the Amalekites, these are bitter enemies of Israel who were trying to destroy the Jews many years before Esther's time. This was when Saul was king of Israel. And God tells Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites, including their king, Agag. But Saul thought, nah, I'm smarter than you, God. And he decides to spare Agag. He disobeys God. And Agag's future generations were not destroyed. And now, 400 years later, his descendant, Haman, is determined to destroy the Jews. Their plight was the fruit of a root problem that wasn't dealt with earlier. So when the book of Esther says that Haman was an Agagite, the writer is telling us that he's part of a legacy of unaddressed sin that should have fully been eradicated long ago. Some of us know what it is to have something that we should have dealt with earlier, something we wish we would have dealt with, but we didn't. And now it's come back to haunt us today. Friends, this is why, just as an aside, we, we need to fully deal with sin. It's not something we push off. It's not something we kind of bury underneath in the back burner. It's something that we have to combat, right? John Owens famously said, be killing sin lest it be killing you. See, Haman is now filled with hatred, and this is a hatred that he has learned. This is a hatred that his people have learned for years. And just also as an aside, this is why we speak out against things like racism. Because if we're negligent, right, if we we just, I don't know, it's uncomfortable, I don't want to talk about it again. These are things that are learned, and if we are negligent, like Saul, if we fail to speak up, it festers and it breeds generations of contempt. Because racism is a hatred that is learned over the years. And Haman hates the Jews. And this hatred has led him to be called, actually, in this text, the enemy of the Jews. And now that we have this enemy that's kind of shown up on the scene, wouldn't you know it, Mordecai just has to kind of stir the pot. See, Mordecai, as a Jew, knows that he walks in the ways of the Lord, and he's not going to bend his knee in worship and homage to anyone but the eternal king of the ages. And Mordecai is a problem, not just because of his ethnicity, though that is a problem for Haman. Mordecai is a problem because he's not getting in with the program. He's not submitting to Haman, and Haman's ego can't handle it. You would think like, hey man, just look over it, right? It's not that big a deal, right? You got all of this great stuff going on. You've got all of this delight of the king. You've got all these things happening. Like, why can't you just move past this? But for Haman, man, Mordecai is like the hair in the soup. Right? You, know, you can't just get past that. You've got to deal with this situation. It ruins everything else. It fills him with blind rage. And that's when we see the plot starts to unfold. So let's look at verse 7. 
verse 7 says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus Xerxes, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to the king, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver, which is an insane amount of money, into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Okay, so what just happened? Haman basically comes to the, G- comes to the king and says, hey, um, I would like to commit genocide. And the king says, yeah, man, seems cool. Here you go. Here's the keys to the kingdom. That's what just happened. This is crazy, right? The king is so consumed. He's so preoccupied with his significance and his glory that he doesn't care what else happens as long as he's being built up. This is why you don't surround yourself with bias and prejudiced people, right? Because as long as they, they, they stroked his ego, as long as they make him feel good, then they can believe whatever they want. Let me just ask a question. Do you have people in your life who challenge you? People who speak wisdom to you? Because Xerxes didn't. Now it says that they cast lots, right, to decide when to carry out this edict to eradicate the Jews. What does that mean? It means that they rolled dice, and wherever the dice landed later in the year, that's when they were going to carry out this genocide. Why would they do that? Because Haman doesn't just want to rid himself of the Jews. He wants them to suffer. He wants them to live in this inevitable panic and dread. That, hey, you're going to die, but not today or tomorrow, but soon. That they would live with this overwhelming sense of fear. That they would look at their children and weep. And it works. Here's what we see after the edict goes out. Look down to verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of this document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. To courier, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So Haman and the king are just having a good time, and everybody else is panicking. The city is thrown into confusion. Dread is impending for the Jews. Now let me say this. When we read about Haman, really, let's be honest, when we read about anyone who commits atrocities, we kind of can tend to become a little bit self-righteous. Like, oh, man, I can't believe that person would do that. What evil, how heinous. But let's be real with one another. Let me just ask you a question. Are you nursing a grudge? Do you have someone's face on a dartboard? Metaphorically, maybe you do. To help you give an honest answer, can I just make a couple suggestions here? 
are there folks like a, maybe a former spouse, a former pastor, a former roommate, a church that offended you, an organization that took unfair advantage of you, a boss, a coach, a family member, someone you revered and trusted who used you and or abused you? Do you have someone who has made life difficult for you and has never sought to make it right? And although they're now, they're out of your life, right? They're physically absent. The incident in the past, it's, it's still vivid in your memory. It's, it's deepening your determination to hold on to them. Do you ever think to yourself, someday, some way, I'm going to get back at them? Quorum Deo, this nursing of anger, this lingering grudge, this deliberate refusal to forgive, it festers and it grows. And it's silent. It's, it's silent. It is so deadly. You see, Haman is an adult by the time we meet him. And he comes into this official position ready to pounce. This is his moment, and he's going to take it. Here's the deal. Life and pain are synonymous. They are. We can't escape them. We can't escape pain. And if we're not careful, that pain can cause you and I to carry out the most heinous of sins. You see, our courts are filled with terrible criminal cases, stalkers, slashers, terrorists, abusers, murderers, even serial killers. We read of a man who has killed 60 people, murdered them in the most gruesome of ways, and we sit and we watch this man in court. He's smiling through his trial, and we think, what an animal. And so he may be. What is easy to ignore is this. That same animal-like nature resides in me, and it resides in you, and it is wicked to the core. It is vile beyond belief, and were it not for the presence and grace and the miraculous deliverance of Jesus Christ at work within us, controlling our passions, urging us to forgive and move on, it would consume us, and we would kill and not give a second thought. How absolutely powerless we are to solve our own inner problem of evil. We're not the power of the Holy Spirit given to me in daily doses. I mean, literally, moment by moment doses. My grudges, my lack of forgiveness could grow into thoughts that would shock you and yours would shock me. That, friends, is what's happening to Haman. That's why he could devise this wicked plan. That's why he could commit this evil and then just go about drinking with the king, not giving it a second thought. See, Cormdale, would you and I lay down our rage and petition the Holy Spirit to conform us into the image of Christ, that we would take off the old man and put on the new? So this is where we start with Haman's wicked plan. Now we go over to chapter 4 and we see Mordecai's response. Verse 1 of chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. 
And when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Mordecai is distraught. In fact, all of the Jews are. Suffering is impending. How could they save their families? How could they save themselves? He's now clothed in sackcloth. Basically, he's wearing a potato sack, and he's saying, essentially, I feel terrible, so I'm going to look terrible. This is ancient mourning, and really, even to this day, Eastern mourning is different than ours, right? In, in, in our culture, typically, you see people where we're somber, but we're, we're respectable. You know, you, you dress in all black, and you, you kind of hold it together. Not in Eastern cultures. There's wailing. It's loud. There's crying. Have you ever mourned like that? Have you ever lost something that you were just so gut-wrenchingly broken? Has the news ever been so heavy that your heart just, you just couldn't bear it? That's where Mordecai is at. What about his cousin? How's the queen faring? She doesn't even know the news. She finds out about it from her servants. And when she hears it, She's distressed. And she does the only thing she can think to do. She sends new robes to clothe her cousin. Try and make it better. And Mordecai refuses them. And maybe you read this and you're like, geez, Mordecai, I mean, she's just trying to help and make things better. Like, don't be a jerk. But Mordecai wants to make it clear to her that new clothes are not going to make this better. How many of us would rather avoid the problems because we're scared of what our involvement might cost us? How many of us are delaying God's deliverance because we're too busy distracting ourselves with new robes? Maybe you're pining for a vacation, a new house, a new spouse. Maybe you just want some good old-fashioned retail therapy. This is the guy who works 60 to 70 hours a week so he doesn't have to face his failing marriage. This is the mom who reaches for the wine bottle because she can't bear what her life has become, or the person who hits yes for the third time when Netflix asks, are you still watching? It's easier to be distracted than to press in. Because if we press in, man, there's concern of what it might cost us. When Esther is informed of Mordecai's refusal, she asks, what would you have me do? And he says, you need to go to the king. You need to go to the king. What does she say? Well, let's look down, verse 11. She says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Esther saying, Mordecai, you know the rules. I can't just waltz in there. This could all go horribly. I mean, you've heard about my husband, right? He whipped the sea. He's not all there. He's not a stable guy. He's not a reasonable man. He wiped the city of Athens to the ground. And besides all of that, 
I haven't seen him in a month. I don't even know if he's thinking about me anymore. And this is where Mordecai's famous challenge comes back. And we see Esther's faith respond and rise. Verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is where we get the title of our series. Because really, this is one of the most poetically beautiful statements of God's providence in all of Scripture. And here's the thing. The writer doesn't even mention God's name. Mordecai is saying, Esther, do you think that you're queen by mere coincidence? Do you think all this just kind of happened to you as though God were absent and not present? You have been put in this position to do something. And guess what, Coram Deo? So have you. The challenge for you and I today is to open our eyes to the opportunities of such a time as this. We do not exist for ourselves. We exist to make a difference, an impact. And the great tragedy today is that if the church isn't accomplishing kingdom purposes, right? If we're not bringing people to Jesus Christ, if we're not discipling them in the faith, if we're not improving people's lives so that they can be greater impact vessels for God, then we're just having a weekly get-together in Jesus' name, and we're wasting everyone's time. Every year, my, my wife likes to torture herself by watching the movie The Titanic. I don't know why she does it, but she does it every year. And every year, right, when the intermission comes on, I walk in the, I walk in the room and the, she's in the living room because I, I don't want to, I mean, like, I don't, I get it. I don't want to join in, right? And, and she's there and there's like a pile of tissues on the couch. And I'm like, babe, why do you do this to yourself? And she looks up at me and she just goes, it's just so sad. And I'm like, yeah, why do you do this to yourself? These were real people. She gets so sad. And I don't know why she does it to herself. See, the sinking of the Titanic, it was a horrible loss. 1,500 lives. But did you know that many of those people did not have to die? Because most of the lifeboats leaving the ship were only half full. But the people who were in them didn't want to risk turning back the boat to rescue others drowning in the water for fear that they would rush the lifeboats. They would bum rush them. And in their panic to be saved, they would overturn boats and sink everyone. So the people were saved in the lifeboats and they simply just kept going because reaching back for others might interfere with them being delivered. Hundreds of people died because those who were already saved didn't want to save others. Esther has a choice to make here. She can go to the king and attempt to save her people. But if she does, she may lose her life. The call for you and I to share our faith, to be obedient, it may come with great cost. What will we do? What does Esther do?
Well, her faith, friends, rises. Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then, away, then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Esther's faith grows up fast. She hears Mordecai's challenging words and makes the decision to put herself at risk. Something that's kind of stuck out to me this week as I've been praying and processing and reading it is from a pastor named Brandon Marshall. Looking at Esther's faith, he says that we can learn what faith and action looks like by this, and, and I'll put this up on the screen. It's this. It's that belief, belief is faith plus unbelief acting on the belief part. Say that again, because it seems confusing, and then I'll explain it. Belief is faith plus unbelief acting on the belief part. See, Esther admits that she may well perish, but she's going to act. You see, you and I, we don't wait until we don't have any unbelief anymore. That, that's not how it works, right? It, it, it's when we act on our faith, even when unbelief is there. This is the dad in Mark chapter 9, right? His son had a spirit that was convulsing him and throwing him into fires. And when he looks at Jesus, Jesus challenges him. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. You see, this side of eternity, you and I are going to find ourselves acting in faith, but we're going to find ourselves asking Jesus to help us with our unbelief over and over and over again and again and again. Because it's so hard for you and I to look at the circumstances of our lives and to bolster our faith. But when we quiet our hearts and we remember the one who not only took our punishment on the cross, but we remember the one who conquered death itself, that's when we declare, I believe, help my unbelief. Esther 4 is a moment where you and I can resonate with Mordecai we can resonate with Esther because life can be overwhelming. We can find ourselves asking, God, are you enough? Because this is so hard. That, friends, is the point of Esther 4. So what happens next? Well, you have to come back next week. Kidding, you can read ahead if you want, but We're going to pause here because we have to ask this question. What do we do with this? How how do we apply all of this to our lives? There's a lot of kitschy Christian statements out there, you know. uh, There's a lot of bad ones, but one that I particularly hate because it's just so flat out wrong and blasphemous is God will never give you more than you can handle. You guys ever heard that one? That's not in the Bible, by the way. Uh, It might have been on a bumper sticker. Your grandma might have said it to you, but it's hot garbage bumper sticker theology. That's what I call that. Hot garbage. Um, Ask Esther and Mordecai how they feel about that. Ask the Apostle Paul. My goodness, why don't we just ask some people in our church whose parents are in the hospital right now. You feel like God's uh, giving you more than you can handle? 
Because I guarantee you they will all say yes. Many of you, you have felt so deeply overwhelmed. And when life, it just, it just feels like it's crushing you. What if the point of all the crazy, of all the difficulties, what if the point is that all of the questions we are asking would drive us to him? If you're a note taker, write this down. Sometimes God would rather bring you through than rescue you from. Sometimes God would rather bring you through than rescue you from. Friends, this is in Scripture over and over and over and over and over, and we miss it all the time. I was just having a conversation about this this past week, about how we think that, like, when life's hard, well, God must be mad at me. No, friends. Think of Joseph. He's bound captive by his brothers. That's a pretty bad day. I mean, I've had some fights with my brothers, but they've never sold me into slavery. Then he's falsely accused of rape, thrown into prison. And God uses all of that to bring him as second in command of e- into, in Egypt to save his people. And Joseph famously said, what you meant for evil, God used for good. Or Moses, right? Moses is just trying to be a good dude. He sees his two guys fighting. Right? And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 don't do that. And they're like, what are you talking about? You Get out of our face. Who are you? He tries to interject in another moment and ends up killing someone and has to go and spend 40 years herding sheep. God used every single year. Or what about the Apostle Paul? If you ever think like, hey, the Christian life, if you ever just like want to think that prosperity gospel is like a real thing, that like God wants health, wealth, and prosperity for you, and you're never going to have trials, you're never going to have suffering, life is going to be sunshine and roses, please go read First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 11. Just go read it, because it's a laundry list of everything that Paul has to endure while he's being extremely faithful. I promise more so than most of us. He's planting churches. He's writing Bible. And what does it say? I've been shipwrecked, beaten, robbed, bitten by snakes, right? Would you think at some point Paul would be like, what's going on? But he stays faithful. There is this reality that if you and I were to stay on this side of comfort and ease, that we will be deceived and lulled by the enemy to think that we do not need God. But God in his kindness replaces our self-sufficiency with God-dependency. Esther realizes if she's going to make it, she needs God to show up. And so she asks, okay, Mordecai, I'm going to do this. I believe, help my unbelief though, you guys got to pray for me. You've got too fast because I don't know how I'm going to do this, how I'm going to have the strength. Over the last couple weeks, I have been contemplating the reality of our world. Um, It is hard to church plant. It is hard to church plant in a pandemic. Um, Many of us are dealing with crazy, crazy situations. I go back to this lesson I learned early on at the very beginning of our church planning journey. I was sitting across from a pastor who had, a pastor who had done this for years. 
and he had a, like a whole bunch of journals. And he's like, th- these are the first six years of, of, of church planning and pastoral ministry. And he's like, these are filled with ideas and plans and thoughts. He said, let me tell you what I think of all these. And he threw them in the trash. I was like, great. I'm really encouraged right now. He said, let me show you what this is. He grabbed a CBR journal. He said, I stopped trying to plan, and I stopped trying to, to earn and, and, and work and, and strategize because I read the book of Acts, and I realized that every great movement of God comes from waiting, expectant, prevailing prayer. And he said, and so I started writing this at the top of a page. He wrote the words, Jesus only. What does that mean? Those are prayers that I, through my own ingenuity, can't answer. These are prayers that only Jesus could answer. Prayers like, God, save my son. Prayers like, God, bring renewal. I can't make that happen. I can't change hearts. I can't change minds. The only way that we are going to move forward as a church, friends, is if Jesus only works, right? If Jesus saves, if Jesus moves. And the only way, friend, for you to move forward in your life is if Jesus only can work and power and stir and compel your hearts to wonder. Jesus is enough. He is. told this story before. I hadn't planned on telling it, so I'll be quick. You guys know the story of, of I was engaged. I was three months away from getting married. A girl dumped me for another guy. It was really sad. My brother calls me. It's two in the morning. He says, Billy, go read First Peter and ask the question, is Jesus enough? If this marriage doesn't pan out, if she really is going to leave. It's not just cold feet. Is Jesus enough? You see, the book of 1 Peter is written to a people who are dispersed, who are facing persecution, right? Who are living under the reign of Nero, who wanted to burn Rome to the ground and then blame it on the Christians so he could crucify them. The great, great answer to the question over and over throughout the book of 1 Peter, is Jesus enough? The answer is he is. Friend, I don't know what you're suffering. Some of you I do. But I promise you, whatever you think you need, if it is not Jesus, it will not satisfy. It will not last. And it will not endure. And I know for many of us, we are suffering and we're thinking, is he enough? I'm not sure. My challenge to you would be to pray the same prayer. Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Because sometimes God would rather bring you through than rescue you from. And Jesus is enough to get you through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so overwhelmingly grateful for the book of Esther because it just strips away the veneer No one has got it all together right now. Nobody knows what to do. 
parents are struggling. Child care seems like a, 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 a mythical thing. Teachers are reeling right now. I know there are people who are tuning in on live stream because they have no other choice. That is already just a little bit of icing on top of the cake of all of the issues we have going on in our own families, and our own lives, with our jobs, with our children, with our friends, all the discouragement that we have. And Lord, I think like Esther, many of us, we would rather <laughs> distract ourselves with new robes. We would rather argue and petition like, yeah, but like this is going to cost me a lot. God, I pray that we would just see the reality that sometimes, Lord, you don't just make everything better, but you bring us through it. And with great divine purpose, you remind us gently, mercifully, that you are enough. That you are more than enough. That if every comfort was stripped away, every relationship came to an end, If we had you, then we can endure. That we can sing with the saints of old, take the world, give me Jesus. Jesus, I I can't. I can't preach enough sermons, read enough books, meet enough people, shake enough hands, do enough things to change hearts. I am insufficient, but you are all sufficient. Lord, would you stir and compel Corindeo to believe the truth that you are enough for us, Lord? Would we press deeper into that truth and that reality? I pray all of this in Christ Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.